Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So, our next Wednesday wake-up retreat is going to be, put on your calendars, April 24th, Saturday, from 9 to 3.30. It's going to be our next retreat, and this retreat is going to be comparing mindfulness meditation to insight meditation. So this retreat is about learning the difference between mindfulness practice and insight practice. So we will explore the difference between the two meditations and the relationship between the two, how they came about, as mindfulness meditation is actually the, you might say, cousin, or uh, you might say insight meditation is the grandparent, maybe, and mindfulness meditation is the, the offspring of some sort. And uh, we'll be taking a deep dive into the art and practicality of insight meditation. And I've been sort of building up a few distinctions that I wanted to share. So I'm going to put it into the retreat. So you'll be getting that announcement quite quickly here. And uh, April 24th, 9 to 3.30. On Zoom, of course. Let's pick up where we left off uh, sort of last week. Um, last week, we were talking about skillful speech, but we are also continuing to talk about lessons we can learn from 2020 and how we can practically apply the Dharma to situations where we have stacked suffering, compounded suffering, and exploring different ways to look at suffering so that we can practice as a proactive way of getting prepared for it right? To be prepared when it does happen. And then looking back on suffering that's happened in the past and asking ourselves, what worked? What in my practice worked before when I was experiencing dukkha? And what would I like to continue the next time that kind of suffering arises? And well, what do I need to change? What skill do I need to add? What aspect of the Dharma seemed to fail me, right? What did, where did I fall on my face and where do I need to pick myself up? So this has sort of been the theme for the last few weeks, uh, is looking back at 2020 at the intense suffering that we all felt in different ways and trying to look in, and reflect on what worked for us in the Dharma and how when suffering arises in the future, as it will, it is on the agenda, it is already calendared, suffering will come. And what are we going to do when the suffering comes again? And can we learn some lessons from our past, which the Buddha was really big on reflecting, oddly enough, the Buddha's really big into the present moment, but also looking into the past and seeing what skills worked when suffering arose previously and making sure we carry them over into the present. So I wanted to just bring, surprise, surprise, I'll bring a few ideas about suffering uh, into this talk tonight, uh, and we'll sort of close up this uh, exploration here. I just wanted to make a few comments about why exploring suffering and exploring how we respond to suffering, in particular, how we respond to suffering when it arises is such a huge part of the Dharma. And a couple things I wanted to clarify. The first thing is that when we say we want to free ourselves from suffering, we're not talking about freeing ourselves from a feeling, 
right? We're not talking about eradicating a feeling of pain or a feeling of discontent. When we talk about suffering, we're talking about a three-dimensional, holistic experience. Thinking, feeling, behaving, acting, relating with others. When we're suffering, a whole identity arises into being. And so when we're talking about being free from suffering, we're talking about free from a way of being in the world and replacing that way of being, which continues the cycle of pain and discontent and bringing into being something brand new. So we're not just running away or pushing away or even spiritually transcending just a feeling of discontent. We're bringing a whole new way of being into the world. So it's quite dynamic, right? It's quite holistic. We're talking about changing the way we feel our body and the way we breathe and the way we speak and the way we live. So it's an entire way of being that we're actually changing that leads to that freedom. One of the challenges with suffering, as we all know, uh, is that when we're suffering, in a moment of discontent, in a moment of intense stress, our consciousness contracts. It's natural. Our heart contracts, our consciousness contracts, and the functioning of our health and our well-being and our ability to be skillful contracts. It gets reduced. This is just the natural, biological, physiological experience that human beings have in a state of crisis, in a state of fear, in a state of grief. Unless we train the heart otherwise, that is the natural consequence. And it's totally normative that when we're in pain and when we're in grief and when we're stressed out about stuff, that we become more self-centered, right? More self-oriented. Self-centered might be, we sort of have a connotation around that that's hyper-negative, but self-oriented, self-focused. And it's easy when we're suffering to get trapped in that self-orientation, to collapse into ourselves and get disconnected from others. Another thing that happens as we sort of collapse inward is that there's this, <laughs> I was just thinking what Robert Beattie likes to say, the song of the self, the I, me, mine tends to get heightened. When we're in a state of suffering, the first thing that we're biologically oriented to do is protect ourselves, right? To figure a way out. When we're in a state of suffering, our first thought is not to go help somebody else. Our first thought is, what's happening here? What can I do about it? So there's this natural inward focus that happens when we're in pain. But if we stay there in that inward focus, then it becomes this I, me, mine, I, me, mine. It either becomes like a victimization. We get trapped in uh, this fight, flight, freeze. We get stuck without mindfulness or without some way of bringing awareness to the process of suffering. Suffering in general tends to keep us introverted, keep us trapped in this I, me, mine cycle. And when that happens, we can't do much. And we certainly can't do much for others. I always use the example of uh, when you're sick. I don't know about you, but I presume that uh, there's a similar uh, experience that you've had where if you have the flu or a cold or you're really sick, the last thing you really want to do is care for other people. You know, you kind of want to curl up and take care of yourself. Your natural inclination is to treat yourself well, right? To hibernate, to withdraw. You're not thinking when you're really sick, oh, how can I go save the world? You just don't have that outward orientation. So it's important to remember that part of the reason we're freeing ourselves from suffering 
is so that that inwardness that happens when suffering occurs does not keep us trapped, does not cut us off from compassion, does not cut us off from wisdom, and does not cut us off from joy. And so I'll speak to this a little bit in regards to kind of the stress we've been experiencing and, and how this works socially. The edict in the Dharma is to be awake and aware enough during the time of suffering that we can care for ourselves without it derailing our experience, without being dragged down into it. So the awareness that we're developing in the Dharma allows us ultimately to be completely free from suffering. But in the meantime, what allows us to do is to not feel so trapped by it, to not feel so overwhelmed by it, to not have that stinging sensation or that sort of claustrophobia that comes feeling that we're inundated, that kind of fear that comes in depression, that feeling of like uh, sort of being buried, being trapped. The Dharma allows us to get out of that space. And when we're out of that space, it's hugely helpful for our own well-being, but it also allows us to be somewhat oriented to others at the same time. So we're not completely cut off. We don't go completely inward when we're feeling stressed. We don't completely withdraw. We keep our mind and our heart somewhat open. And that's the edict of the Dharma. And again, it's natural for us to turn the other direction when we're in pain, which is why we need to untrain the heart and mind to still keep a foot in this outward orientation when suffering is upon us. Now, when you look at suffering, and I've said this before, um, one of Goenka's great quotes is that suffering is contagious. It wouldn't be that big of a deal if we could suffer in silence and it wouldn't affect anybody. But it does. It affects all those people around us, right? We are meaningful to other people. We have interpersonal relationships. And when we're suffering, it affects other people. And that interconnectedness is something that the Buddha focused on. The Buddha always asked us to remember, we're not just healing ourselves, but we're healing ourselves so we can be of service to others, so that we can maintain that compassion and maintain that connectivity, even during trials and tribulations. And what you notice this last year, or what I noticed, I should say, I'll speak from the eye, um, what I noticed this last year is that as the suffering grew, pandemic, political upheaval, the elections, the fires, when all of this st stuff was compounded over time, more and more, it felt that people were becoming contracted. People were unable to be kind to others. There was a lot more defensiveness. There was a lot more offensiveness right? People were lashing out. People lost their patience. What we saw was with the compounded stress, there was this movement all throughout, which felt like people were really losing their minds. They were really losing the balance of their minds. And so that's totally natural in times of crisis, but it spreads in the community. When I'm stressed, the person next to me gets stressed. When I'm fearful, the person next to me gets fearful. I remember uh, when I was, when I went to the store early on, right as the pandemic happened. Now, granted, I was really naive and thought the pandemic was going to last like two weeks. So I stocked up on some food and thought I was good to go. But when I went to the store and saw all the shelves uh, cleaned out, I got a sense of fear I did not have before I walked in the store. I thought like, okay, I'm going to stock up on some water. And I don't remember if I was attached to toilet paper at that time, but I was definitely just packing out, getting some stuff situated. I didn't realize TP was going to be this big ordeal. But what I did, what I did notice 
was that as soon as I saw the shelves like really bare, I started to panic because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not taking this seriously enough. And the reason I point that out as an example is that when people overreact, the next person in line also overreacts and it's contagious. So if we can keep the balance of our mind during crisis, then those around us are, can also be encouraged socially to keep the balance of their minds. So there's a social dimension to suffering that we always have to keep in mind. This is why the Dharma is never selfish, because we're interconnected. So if we maintain the balance of our minds through our heart-centered practices, through our Vipassana, then in times of crisis, we can be that light, we can be that equanimous force for others, and it encourages other people around us to also be at ease, also be calm, and also be balanced. So there's a social dimension that we have to remember. Another aspect of the social dimension is if any of you have ever cared for somebody who's been really suffering, could be just that they're in a temporary crisis, you know, anything at all, or it could be a medical situation, or it could be something serious, right? Like a parent or a grandparent, someone with dementia, uh, someone in the family that just needs some long-term care. We all know as human beings that caring for others in stress, in crisis, in discontent is, is hard work. It's hard to care. Caring takes energy. Caring takes time right? And it takes a certain wherewithal to keep up that caring energy. So, and I'm not saying that as any kind of, of course, I'm not saying that with any kind of blame or shame. I'm saying it to acknowledge that caring for each other, as beautiful as it is, takes a lot of energy and time and it's hard. It's not easy. So if we, in times of crisis, can be those people that stand up with a sense of tranquility in our heart, a sense of compassion in our heart, and a sense of equanimity, it is so much easier to care for others. It is so much easier to encourage others to do so. So our ability to practice in times of crisis radiates out. That's the karmic flow. It radiates out to those around us. We're not only helping ourselves so we can feel less stressed in times, but we're trying to help other people regulate as well with our mindful presence. So that's why exploring how we respond to suffering. And I really want you to hear the word, how we respond to it. When a crisis occurs, being mindful of how we're responding can be a huge doorway to awakening. How we respond changes everything, right? It changes everything. What I noticed in this last year was that the pandemic brought out the worst in people but in a lot of cases, it brought out the best of people. People, sure, lost the balance of their mind and were selfish and contracted and they were hateful and mean and violent. And people rose to the occasion and were generous and gifting of themselves. People made huge sacrifice. People sacrificed their lives to care for others. Doctors worked around the clock. People worked on getting the vaccine. You know, firefighters during the time of the fire. So people were in this time of stress called into a state of identity or in the Dharma sense, they called up their highest self. They called up a part of themselves that was balanced, equanimous, mindful, compassionate, and giving. So how we respond to suffering is so important as Dharma practitioners because it can go either way. We can easily lose the balance of our mind and get swept away 
into that self-centered myopic state, which is totally natural for that to happen, or we can call upon the fruits of our practice to be loving, kind, generous beings that support ourselves and support our and support our fellow humans in a time of incredible despair. So how we respond is of utmost importance. And that's what I want to focus on uh, in the next few minutes is just talking about how we respond to suffering and why the Buddha says this is so important. I posted this, I think today or yesterday on, on Instagram. It's a paraphrase of several different people I've heard over the years, but it's something that I noticed last year. And that's this. Times of crisis reveal our true character. Times of crisis really reveal our true character. And part of the reason the last few weeks I've wanted us to reflect on the stress and the trials of 2020 is because I'm really inviting us to ask ourselves, how did we show up last year? In times of stress, were we able to live up to our full aspiration and potential as kind, loving beings? And, and this includes myself, were there moments where we just lost the balance of our mind and needed someone else to care for us because we were way too stressed and way too fearful and way too discombobulated for whatever the reason may be? And so that's why I invite us to take a look in that direction when you look at the Dharma, the Dharma reminds us that moment to moment, a new self is arising. A new identity arises with each breath. And this identity breathes a certain way and thinks a certain way and feels a certain way and postures a certain way. There is the optimistic self and the contracted self. There's the loving self and the fearful self. And we have all these selves that just arise and pass away moment to moment. And there is a suffering self. There's an identity that arises in times of distress. And getting to know that identity is a huge awakening for meditators. Really turning towards that suffering self and asking the mind to really look at it and say, how am I being in this moment? How is my sorrow? How is my stress? How am I being with people in my life? That analysis, that investigation, that curiosity that the Buddha invites us to bring to the suffering self is the beginning stage of being liberated from suffering. We have to first see how we respond to it to see how we can unravel it, right? How we can be something different without being able to really honor and be true to how we are in times of crisis. It's really difficult to bring in to being a new self, a more loving self, a more equanimous self. We have to start with the suffering self. And that takes courage, right? That takes a little gusto, right? It takes a little patience, a little vulnerability. And we all manage suffering in such hugely different ways. Some of us like outright deny it. And some of us like to get distracted from it. Uh, some of us are quiet and contemplative when we suffer. Um, don't want to be around people. And then some of us reach out to others when we're suffering and want to connect. Sometimes suffering arises and we, the logical part of our mind comes online and we do this kind of uh, practical problem solving, right? How do I get out of the suffering? We do a checklist and we do A, B, C, D. And other times we just tune out because we don't know what to do or how to deal. Some of us greet suffering with acceptance and other sometimes we just greet it with a blaming self or an angry self. Um, and so it just depends moment to moment how we're responding. The key for a Dharma practitioner, 
is to be awake and aware enough to watch the suffering self arise. Who shows up in times of grief, in times of crisis, in your mind body? Who shows up in those moments? And can we begin to sculpt a type of self that will reach towards that suffering and call compassion, the qualities of liberation, patience, courage, resilience into being? All of these positive qualities. It's important for us to get to know the suffering self. And that is one of the edicts of the first noble truth. There is suffering. There is suffering. There's an aspect to our response to suffering that I think is really important. And that is the fact that turning away from it is a completely normative experience. And I know I've talked about this tons in different talks, but I'm just going to just review it for a half second here. It's really important to be loving and caring to ourselves in time of crisis and understand that it's completely normal to not want to do deal with pain of any sort. It's totally natural. Three things that I've noticed in myself when I turn away from some kind of pain or discontent. First of all, when I'm suffering, it makes me feel vulnerable, right? And I don't want to be vulnerable. So that's one way I might push away pain or suffering. We feel vulnerable. The other thing is, in our culture, particularly North American culture, we don't go around announcing our suffering. We usually tell people everything is fine, we're doing okay. Even on a bad day, someone might meet you in a hallway somewhere and say, how are you doing? And you might have just been feeling really depressed and you'll say, I'm fine, I'm hanging in there, it's all good. We don't usually announce that we are struggling with something, right? Because it makes us feel vulnerable. We have this... Uh, we have to save face in a sense, culturally. We want to experience, uh, we want people to experience us as not appearing weak. And so this is totally common. The other thing we don't want to acknowledge when we're suffering is that feeling we have of being out of control. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to be in the throes of stress or discontent of any sort. And when we can't control it, you know, it just comes down on us on a day of the week or for a month or a year. We lose our job, we lose a loved one. We're stuck indoors, so on and so forth. No one wants to have that. No one wants to acknowledge that there's this real deep feeling of not being in control of that circumstance and really wanting to be in control of it. So we don't tend to like walk up to somebody and just say, I'm having a really crappy day and I'm really depressed and I'm afraid of getting COVID and I'm afraid of the elections. And I, you know, we don't just do that. You know, we don't just start listing off all of our vulnerabilities and the way that we're frightened and afraid of things. So I always just, I have to remind our, ourselves to have the self-care, right? Have the self-love and to remind ourselves that turning away from suffering is, is totally natural. Right? I don't want us to get down on ourselves or be self-deprecating because we don't just accept the first noble truth and every time suffering comes into play, we're just practicing Vipassana and it's all good. I mean, that's, not, that's never how it really is day to day. I mean, honestly, full transparency. Man, last week I woke up one day, I was like terribly depressed, like real stingy, sharp overwhelm of like feeling sad. I just had this incredible sadness that arose. And I didn't want it to be there. I was like, oh, this is terrible. I just like, and I felt like sort of at the whim of this emotion. And I did some meditation, which helped a little bit, but I felt really sad for several days. And there was this feeling of, I can't control this. 
um, struggled to bring equanimity to it. It was just one of those days or multiple days where I just felt really sad. And now, did I go run around the neighborhood being like, oh, I'm having a really sad day? No, I just like just did my thing. It wasn't something I like broadcast anywhere, but it was true. If someone had asked me how I was doing, particularly someone maybe not in my immediate circle, I probably would have said, oh, I'm fine. I'm just, you know, just doing my thing. But that wasn't the truth. The truth was I had a really bad day last week. So it's okay to remind ourselves that we're going to have these moments where accepting suffering is not on the game board. It's not something that's going to happen. One other aspect of this before I ground this in the Dharma for us. It's really important to remember that when human beings are in a state of stress, this is like sort of a psychological uh, interpretation here. When we are in a state of stress, the natural inclination of the mind and this increases the, the more the stress increases. So to the degree that we are experiencing stress, the more stress we experience, the more likelihood the mind is going to regress back to a time we were stressed before and try and use our previous habits to keep the stress away. So if we're in a crisis, it's really common for the human heart and the human mind to regress back to childhood and try to figure out how to manage the stress from that state. So regression is really common when we're in a significant state of stress. Our old habits of how we dealt with stress in the past come online the more stressed out we are. Now here's the caveat. With mindfulness and the Dharma, we can practice in such a way that we can watch that happen and we can say, no, I'm not going to use those old habits because those old habits might not be functional right now. These old habits might be maladaptive. They might not be useful. Maybe they were useful when I was eight or nine or five or six or a teenager. It's not useful right now. But there's something about when the mind panics, when it gets overwhelmed by stress, it tends to fall back on what it knows best, which is old habits. And the old habits of how you've dealt with suffering in the past are probably not the lessons of the Dharma, unless, of course, you've been practicing forever. Um, but most of us are going to fall back on the unconscious habits. So when you think about it, the fact that the mind has a habit of running away from suffering, the fact that the mind will regress and pull up old habits that might not be helpful, because of those two things, we really need to practice. We need to practice mindfulness before the stress happens. So as these old habits arise, we can say, no, I am going to bring an enlightenment factor to this moment. I'm gonna bring compassion where there's fear. I'm gonna bring equanimity where there is a mind and heart out of balance. So because that's our natural tendency, we have to be proactive in practice. So when I look back over this last year of all the stress I experienced, the big insight I had was remembering I need to prepare for suffering. I need to know what I do when I get stressed out. I need to know what happens when I lose the balance of my mind so I can anticipate it. I can be an awake and aware being in a time of discontent and not just get flooded and overwhelmed. So those are really important things to be aware of when you're thinking about your suffering self, right? And the self that you would like to bring into being in times of discontent. So I wanted to just mention a few reminders about the Dharma skills that can help us 
in these type of times. Um, because I think it's easy to forget why the Buddha gives us particular tools. And during the stress, it certainly isn't, it's certainly difficult to remind ourselves. So uh, gratitude. I know I talked about a lot, a lot with gratitude this year. Um, and if you haven't checked out the podcast on gratitude, it was like maybe two months ago, uh, I did a couple things on gratitude and generosity. This stuff is so powerful. And this is what it comes down to. Gratitude is the foundational energy of well-being. Gratitude is the foundational energy of well-being. When we wake up in the morning and we put our feet on the floor and we decide to engage in life, in that moment, the heart is really saying, there is something good here, right? There is something to get out of bed for. There is something I am grateful for in my life and I am moving towards that thing in my day whether it's my friends or my family or my job or just the joy of living. Gratitude is that energy that pushes us forward during the day. It is the foundation of generosity, but it is also the foundation of our whole spiritual practice. And the reason this is so important is that in times of crisis, in times of stress, it's very difficult to see the goodness in life. I mean, I don't know about you, but last year it just felt like one bad thing after another. And I I was looking for the goodness. I mean, we were doing re, you know reflections here on Wednesday Wake Up. But man, there were days where I just had a hard time finding the light. And like every day it just felt like a new tweet and a new email and a new news broadcast. And I just kept thinking it can't get worse. And then it would get worse. And in those moments... Gratitude is that light. That's the beacon out of despair. Because in times of crisis, if we can find something to be grateful for, right? If we can find something that gives us hope, that gives us the energy to sustain and transcend the stress. The energy we need to deal with suffering comes from the seeds of gratitude. That's why we practice gratitude now. You want to practice gratitude every day so that your mind is trained to be grateful when the stress really comes. That is why gratitude practice is so powerful. So when I look back over this last year, I am reminding myself that I really want to practice gratitude. I really want to go to sleep every night with a sense of gratitude in my heart. I want to wake up every morning with a sense of gratitude in the air. I want to be able to say, hey, there is goodness. So my mind and heart don't forget. Because the mind and heart will forget. And the more stressed out you are, the easier it is to forget of the goodness. So the energy of gratitude is such a great lesson for 2020 because of the compounded stress we all had to deal with. I think that's all I'll say about gratitude. The next thing I wanted to mention was our precepts. And I've given a few talks on the precepts before. But when I look back on 2020, it reminded me that in times of crisis... People lose the balance of their minds, right? People hoarded food. They hoarded supplies. They cut in line for vaccines. They stole supplies and resold them at a higher price. Like people took advantage. Like the whole world was in crisis and many people responded by taking advantage of people. And I'm not saying that to be mean or judgmental. I'm, it's just a fact. Like we saw people lose the balance of their minds. Their hearts contracted and they turned towards that selfish route and the harmful route and the unskillful route. Now, the importance of that is to remember 
that we keep our precepts. Now, of course, our precepts are our ethical, our list of our ethical choices. It is this idea that we are committed to non-harm. And, you know, most of us are like, we'd love to commit to non-harm. I would be happy if I could just do less harm. Uh, I think non-harm is way above my pay grade at this point in my practice, but I'm not saying I don't aspire to it, but like, I got to be honest, like, overall, I consider myself to be kind of a nice, nice person, but I could be such an ass. And I mean, like, I got to be honest, like, you know, it's, you know, there's plenty of times I lose the balance of my mind and I'm just totally rude and I don't take into account someone's feelings or I say something stupid. Like, you know, I am in nowhere in a position to um, say I'm doing no harm, but the Dharma does guide me authentically. I do have an aspiration to be a good person. And I look at the precepts, you know, don't lie, don't gossip, don't take things that are not freely given. What 2020 showed me is that the power of precepts is not just that we're committing to do good day to day, right? Or that we're trying not to hurt ourselves or others. The precepts are a practice that strengthen the heart and the mind, right? We take a commitment to precepts so that in the face of the desire to do ill will, in that in the face of the desire for that contracted heart and that selfishness, we say, no, I'm not going to, that's not what I'm going to stand for. That's not how I want to show up in the world. And so what's great about the precepts is that we practice that goodness. So when stress comes our way and we're in times of crisis, we do not lose the balance of our mind, right? We don't lose our balance and fall into selfishness. We don't lose our balance and fall into the tribalism and the harm that we saw. And it's a, it's a tall order, of course, right? It's a tall order. But the big lesson I got from 2020 around precepts is... Practice them now. Practice being selfless in a time where it's easier to do. So you can train your heart and mind. So when that stress and despair and fright, right? When you walk into a store and you see that the shelves are bare, you do not lose the balance of your heart and mind. You still walk into the world, into that store as a good person who intends to do good to others and is willing perhaps to make some personal sacrifices so everyone can be free. So it's really helpful to remember. That was something that was huge for me, uh, is watching that uh, in the world. So remember that keeping your precepts strengthens the mind. It increases samadhi. It trains the mind to resist the craving to do ill will when we're afraid and we're scared and we're regressing and contracting. And ultimately, it trains the mind to do goodness even when we're under duress. Right? It trains the mind that we are going to be good and show up in the world as kind, loving beings, even in the face of duress. And although I understand it's a high aspiration, I still am a believer that that's, that's the way to go. The last thing I just wanted to mention was skillful effort. And this is sort of a summary of the last uh, couple things I've just mentioned. The reason we encourage ourselves as mindfulness practitioners to practice daily, to practice routinely, to have our retreats and to have our day-longs and to have our seminars. The reason we do that is it's so important to practice when things are going well or relatively well. We want to practice when we're not under duress. We want to practice when we're sick, but we don't have pneumonia, right? We want to practice when we're stressed, but not feeling broken, right? We want to practice when we're sad, but not completely depressed. We want to take advantage of the small pains 
as practice to liberation in preparation for those larger moments where we really need to draw up courage and really need to draw up resilience and adaptability. Because if we do that on a day-to-day -day basis, we will find that it builds resilience. And when those moments come, it's like surfing small waves so you can get the big wave when the big wave comes and not get crushed. The way I saw this play itself out in the pandemic was that we have to practice daily, consistently, because life is filled with suffering. It's all around us. It can happen at any time. And what I saw in 2020 is I saw goodness and compassion and wisdom get washed away, like in a moment, right? I saw people who in one moment could be very kind and compassionate, completely lose the balance of their minds. And I, I am one of them. I was numerous moments where I just felt completely thrown. But I saw that wisdom and compassion and integrity, if not practiced and not really put into being, is very fragile. And in a time of crisis, boom, it, it just gets washed away. So we have to really solidify our compassion and our commitment to show up as kind and loving beings because when you see large-scale trauma like we saw, civility went out the window quite quickly, right? Civil like people who normally might be nice and have balanced minds just they crumbled. They crumbled under the duress. And I want to show up in the world as someone who could withstand that. So when I saw how I was during the pandemic, I want to use the skills that worked well and build new skills so when it happens again, different versions of suffering in my life, I can stand up to it and suffer less ultimately, right? And be healed in a sense. I want to be able to be that healing force. So that was another thing about the skillful effort that I thought was really important in looking back over all of uh, the behaviors I saw in myself and others. There was this one moment, I may have shared this before, <laughs> uh, when the fires came and I totally lost the balance of my mind. I thought I was doing really well up until that point. Um, but when I was wearing a mask inside my house, that just, <laughs> I just lost it. I totally lost it at that point. And I literally started to panic. I had like a panic attack and I... I was having a really bad headache because we had no air filters and the smoke was in the house. I was feeling very sick and very frustrated. And uh, I'm a catastrophizing heart and mind. I have a catastrophizing self that's on demand. It just, <laughs> I don't even have to like ask it to come up. It's just like, it's there. It's like getting a free cable service. Like you don't even have to click on it. It's just like, woo, here I am. So like, <laughs> so I started panicking and Molly, um, as you know, Molly, my wife, uh, I saw myself needing support and I, I watched from inside this panic box that I was in, I watched her completely take control of the situation. And I remember her just looking at me and saying, okay, what can we control? What can't we control? What are we gonna do? And we're just gonna do those things. We're not gonna talk about anything else. What she meant was I was gonna shut up about, we were all gonna die and we were just gonna get done what needed to get done. But. It, well, it, it totally helped me. Like we just made a list. We went to the store and grabbed a bunch of like filters and we duct taped them around these cheap Goodwill fans that we had. And we locked ourselves in a room with these fans, with these filters that were duct taped. And in a couple hours, the air became better and uh, I felt less nauseous and, and panicky. Now, the reason I share that is that 
in the moment, I was so grateful that someone in the room had a balanced heart and mind because I was suffering and I needed support and I had lost the balance of my mind. The other person did not. And because she was able to maintain a semblance of balance, we were both able to have less suffering. And I want to be that. I want to be that in times of stress for other people. I want to be able to do that. Um, So that's when I really saw it, that practice, that continuation of practice. So the last couple things that I'll just say here to bring this to a close, the more we can attune to our suffering self using mindfulness, the easier it is to attune to others when they're in crisis and be more of service. The more we understand how we react when we're stressed, when we're sad, when we're grieving, when we're just pissed off or whatever, the more we're in touch with that and honest about it and vulnerable to it, the easier it is to build a bridge and help and care for others when they are also in distress. If we hide our own vulnerability, very difficult to connect to the vulnerability of others and their anxiety and their panic and their fear is just gonna dysregulate us. One of the great obstacles to spiritual depth, I think, is just fear of knowing ourselves fully. One of the biggest obstacles to liberation is that fear of really knowing ourselves, being able to say, wow, I was a real ass today. I was not very kind and being able to own that and to be okay with it without self-deprecating, right? To really see who we really are. That is where I found myself uh, this year with all of this stuff. So yeah, 2020, glad it's over, but I feel obligated to, uh, as a Dharma person, to really look at it, to look how I was, to look how I showed up. And uh, as we continue to move in the world, suffering is, it's on the checklist, right? It's always going to be on there. It's coming from all directions and how we practice in this moment will prepare us for the next. So I wish us all well, and I wish us all skillful practice Right, And I hope that we can care for ourselves, that we really can look at ourselves with an open and loving heart and be vulnerable, be vulnerable to that part of ourselves that suffers and call into being our highest aspiration. Right, When the time comes to be, we can bring goodness. So that's my wish for all of us when I look back over this year. Let's finish there for this evening, my friends. Let's get out on time, out to on time-ish. We're going to do some meta. Thank you so much for coming and listening. I love seeing all your wonderful faces. This is so much fun. Let's plop into presence for a few minutes and end on a note of compassion for all beings. Let's do this right. Let's remind ourselves of how we want to show up in the world. Let's take a long, slow, deep breath, returning to body presence. The breath body, body breathing. On the exhale, just relax the whole body into the chair or the cushion or the couch. Feeling the weight of your being. Thank yourself for your participation this evening, for taking time out of your long day to practice with others, meditate with others. The gift of yourself is amazing. We come together each week in Sangha. Such an incredible gift. 
And we do come together to heal ourselves always. We want to heal ourselves from suffering, not only so we can be free, but so we can show up in the world as loving, compassionate beings. And we can serve others with a balanced heart and a balanced mind. Let us wish that all beings are the bearers of the fruits of our meditation practice and this time together. Let's wish that all beings are free from harm, that all beings are free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings feel loved and heard, cared for. Let us hold all beings close to our heart, those who are grieving, those who are sad in despair, those who are experiencing great lack. May we extend our hearts to those in need, to those who are suffering. May they be free. May all beings know true love, true kindness, and true joy in this lifetime. May all beings know true joy, true love, and true kindness in this life. As we move to close this evening, let's offer one last wish for the world. In this moment, what would your greatest longing, your greatest wish for all beings, what would that be? Hold that wish close to your heart and radiate it out in all directions. May all be free. May all beings be free. Thank you, my friends, for joining me. I feel so nourished. I will see you next week. Be on the lookout for our announcement for our retreat in April 24th. April 24th. That'll be our next retreat. I will see you next week. Be kind. Be well. Much love to you all. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. 
This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.